Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm Massimo Pilucci, your host, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gelev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Massimo, today is a very special episode. First, because we are here recording live in front of the uh, lovely audience at the uh, Northeast Conference on Science New York. Con- <laughs> I'm sorry. What was Northeast that Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. <laughs> because we have an amazing guest that we are very much looking forward to chatting with on the show today. Our guest is Lawrence Krauss, who is a theoretical physicist and cosmologist at Arizona State, as well as one of the biggest and arguably the best uh, science communicators in the world, having authored such bestsellers as The Physics of Star Trek, and more recently, A Universe from Nothing. Um, Although arguably his biggest claim to fame is having been once quoted by Miley Cyrus. Absolutely. <laughs> for which That's reason right. alone he was a shoe-in for the Rationally Speaking podcast. That's true. I keep forgetting to put that in my CV, but I suppose I should. It should be at the top in, you know, gold glitter letters, really. Uh, Lawrence, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Lawrence, the first question is going to be an obvious one. I heard that you and Captain Janeway these days go around <laughs> promoting flat Earth. What, what the hell is that about? <laughs> Actually, it's worse. Uh, we we um, apparently promote not a flat Earth, but the fact that the Earth is the center of the universe. Oh, even better. That's a and toss up which one is worse. Well, actually, they got it wrong because really, what it, it, I'm the center of the universe. Right. <laughs> and, and they didn't get it right. So. Oh. <laughs> How did that happen? I mean, it, it's. Um, uh, well, it, it uh, well, I didn't really know how it happened initially, but now I've put things together after the fact. I um, there's a, a movie out which uh, well, which I'm not going to mention the name of because as I've written, I think it's just this whole thing is um, wasting more oxygen than necessary on something that's ridiculous. But a movie appeared which I think will go absolutely nowhere. But the but the producers have been getting a lot of press because I'm in it. Um, and some other people, and and the movie is, uh, promotes the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe, that somehow we're special and everything uh, revolves around us. And moreover, actually, I understand one of the producers is also, and I find this poignant and appropriate, um, he also is responsible for, for uh, arguing that the Holocaust never happened. Oh, there you go. And I actually think that's great because... Um, people will see this and realize that it's this obscene nonsense in one area is obscene nonsense in another. And so it'll help remove any credibility whatsoever. But in what case, direction do you think that's going to go? Like, are the Holocaust deniers going to go, oh, God, he's a, a geocentrist? <laughs> yeah, no, no, you know, it's embarrassing. It's, you know, it's funny. My hope is, I'll tell you a story about that. Because, um, you know, a lot of people want to um, debate me about various things. And... Um, uh, and so I had a policy I used to have. So I'd get these questions from, um, you know, creationists. And then and they always say things like, well, you know, how do you know this? And, and don't, you haven't quoted this. And you don't know about this, this evidence of, these, of this fossil with, with dinosaurs and humans walking together and all this nonsense. And then I, so what I like to do is I tell them, you know, do you believe in UFOs? You know, and, and um, like, of course not. Of course not. And I, and, and I say, well, how do you know? Because there are UFO people who want to always be on stage with me, and they, they always say things like, well, you don't know about the 1946 episode in Croatia where six people had their navels, you know, whatever, anyway. And, uh, and, Wait, and I want to find out what happened to their navels. Yeah, well, I, I can't. It's a public, oh, okay. I can't tell you. But uh, It's anyway, a family um, show, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, what I love to do is I say, you know, to these people who tell me that I need to know the details of their favorite creation story, I say, do you, do you believe in UFOs? And I say, no. And I say, well, you know, uh, 
you haven't followed this story in Croatia, blah, blah, blah. And then, <laughs> and then to the UFO people, I do the same thing. I said, do you believe in creation? And they go, no, no, of course I'm scientific. I don't believe in that. And, then, and, and it works wonderfully because if you can show the one set of people that there's a bunch of nuts. It only once, however, I met um, a UFO creationist, and that was not a, you know. <laughs> But anyway, in this case, I think what will happen is, I hope, is it will do just that, though. People will serve people who like to think that um, they're scientific, but of course they don't buy this aspect of science, but they think that's ridiculous, like the Holocaust really happened, and they'll say that's ridiculous, that they'll realize that anyone who promotes both is probably not credible. But anyway, I didn't f finish the story, so what happened is I'm, they interviewed me. I thought they used footage of me. I'm, in, I'm on far too many things, and uh, I thought that they just used footage of me from another interview that maybe they bought. And I'm very careful now about allowing rights for anything I say, just so you know, to go anywhere else. But uh, you did sign the But release, apparently, so. um, you know, they just came to interview me as and 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 misrepresented themselves. And of course, they cut and paste. And and apparently, I come out, um, you know, promoting the Earth as the center of the universe. And uh, it reminds me of my my good friend and colleague Paul Davies, Davies, who's who's with me at Arizona State, was telling me he had a similar episode about. Um, so people came to interview him about artificial intelligence, and and uh, and and he said, you know, it's not like you know rocks can think, and they edited it out and it's had him saying rocks can think. <laughs> anyway, wow. Anyway, anyway, so you've got to be subject to that, and so, but it's also, but Cap Catherine Janeway, Kate Mulgrew, is apparently narrates the the whole stupid thing, and um, which surprised me. Um, but after I wrote a piece in, in Slate about this, uh, she's come out and said she didn't um, know what it was about either, although she narrates it, so it's any, but uh, so happily, the t two sort of people that are known in the movie um, have both come out and said it's a piece of garbage, and hopefully that will help. Maybe they tricked her into narrating by giving her a script that had just, you know, the actual script for the movie, but at the beginning said, none of this is the case, yeah. and so she read that whole thing and they just edited that out. Well, it could have been, you know, to begin, be fair, she just may say, you know, a narrator of a, of a TV show like that actually has often has very few lines, just sort of introducing and, mm -hmm. and saying right. some wowies, I think. So I'm, uh, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. And, uh, but in any case, uh, bottom line is, sure, it's fun for a lot of people that this happened, but now let's just forget about it and let it drift into the dustbin of history. Sure, let's talk about serious stuff. Yeah. So the last year or so have been great for physics. Yeah. The Higgs over here, the gravitational waves over there, yeah. and that sort of stuff. Now, w most of the people in, in, in the audience probably know at least some of the, of the sort of the basic science. What I what I like to talk about with you is the big picture. What, what right. do you take out of these things and whatever else is going on right now in theoretical physics in terms of what is what do they tell us, big picture wise, about the world that we didn't know before? You know, is there anything shake up that is going on in the fundamental physics community and cosmology community? Yeah. Well, they they. I think actually they, they are the, the most surprising thing about all these developments is that they suggest that some of our ideas were right. It, it is, if you're a theoretical physicist um, working in your room at night or with your students, uh, it is the, the, the weirdest not, thing. Not working at night with your students. We right? don't no, work in room okay. at night right. alone or working during the day okay. with my students. Let's make that clear. <laughs> um, you don't edit it out. Uh, and... Uh, um, that it, it is the least expected thing is that something you're writing down and nature actually obeys because it never happens as I say it, most of the time it doesn't happen for me um, and it's really surprising when these ideas that have been developed that are in some sense very speculative what relatively wild extrapolations from what we know actually correspond to nature so the Hig, the discovery of the Higgs for example is something I was sure the Higgs didn't exist it was just too slippery an explanation of uh, it was simple, but it just I thought nature would surprise us. In fact, that's I'm always surprised when I'm not surprised because uh, nature, the imagination of nature is you're, you're meta surprised. I'm meta surprised, okay. exactly. Use a philosophical term, <laughs> but uh, um, it is nature. The imagination of nature is is much greater than the imagination of human beings, and and so. That's why we have to keep looking outward and not inward. Nature keeps... If, if you locked theoretical physicists in a room and had them come up with a, a description of the world, it wouldn't correspond to it at all because really, literally, the imagination of nature is so much greater. No one would have imagined, for example, that empty space has energy and, uh, and, 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 and the expansion of the universe is accelerating, but that's the case. At the same time, the Higgs particle is related to the idea that there's this invisible field throughout the universe that you can't... Detect, which sounds like religion. 
And, well, uh, they don't call it the God Particle yeah, for well, nothing. Well, one person called the God Particle a bad name. I wrote a piece, as you probably know, called it the yeah. Godless Particle. But um, uh, there's also that goddamn particle. Yeah, I know. There's that. <laughs> he claimed he claimed that's what he wanted to call it. Leon is a very funny guy, but I think he knew what side his bread was buttered on. But anyway, um, it, you know, so so there's this invisible field that is responsible for giving mass to everything, and it sounds nice, but and it would be like religion if it didn't also the thing that makes it science is you can make a prediction. As I often say, when you, with this field, it's invisible, but with every field in physics, there's a particle associated with it. And so how can you find out? Well, you just spank the vacuum. Sunday, it's, it's Sunday morning. We should talk about masochism a little bit. Sure. You spank the vacuum really hard, and if you give enough energy at a single point, you'll kick particles out. So there's a prediction. So we have to build a machine that can spank the vacuum, that can dump enough energy in a small enough region that will actually produce these particles associated with the Higgs field. And that's why we built the Large Hadron Collider. And amazingly, they're there. You know, you spank the vacuum hard enough and those particles are there. And I just thought that the Higgs explanation of why all particles have mass was so Ad simple. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a central part of the, of the greatest intellectual edifice that humans have ever created, in my opinion, the standard model of particle physics. But I wanted it to be wrong hmm. uh, because it's more interesting when things are wrong. And it's more, it means that, you know, there's new directions. And it, sure. it was very bad. So that, but anyway, it's incredible that that idea is correct. And what it, the big picture, and, and I, I appreciate your question, because you ask, what do you t take from that? Well, all of this is neat science, but it's, it's a, a more interesting big picture. The thing I take from it is it reinforces that we are here as an accident, just a sideshow in the cosmos, an irrelevant sideshow that doesn't make any difference, just in case it wasn't clear to you. Um, and uh, yeah, see all of doubt in, yeah, the, in yeah. the room. Yeah, because really, if the, it's it, it's uh, the example I often use is like looking at the frost on a window. You you see these beautiful patterns, and and they're pointing in all sorts of different directions, and that, and you know that's fine. But if you lived on one of those icicles, then one direction would look special to you, and and you'd think it was very special. But we we see that's just an accident of where that the the, the water froze, and in a sense, the Higgs field formed as the universe cooled down when, when the Higgs field froze, and it froze in a certain direction, if you wish, and it's an accident. If it froze in a different way, then the world would be quite different, and there was no way in which things were preordained to be like they are and for us to exist. We're a fortunate accident, and uh, that's remarkable. And then the other great development is, is of a few weeks ago, which I, which I, I mentioned uh, yesterday at this meeting, is this incredible discovery of gravitational waves in the Big Bang, which, which allow us to look back to basically the earliest instant, a millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And what makes that exciting is it turns a lot of what people might have called metaphysics into physics. It allows us to probe things which otherwise we would be real speculative about nature and allows us to test them. And so looking back at the beginning of time will change everything because it will allow us to test ideas that I never thought it w would be testable in my lifetime, including the possibility that there may be many universes. And it, at least it allows us to detect, test it in a very clear, if indirect, way. And I think that's fascinating, whenever you can take uh, metaphysics and turn it into physics. Hmm. Yeah, I have so many questions. Uh, I'll pick this one. Okay. Um, so I was reading your answer to this year's edge question, um, and I really liked the question this year. It was, what scientific idea do you think is due for retirement, mm. um, like needs to be retired, basically. And uh, there are a bunch of good answers, and, and yours was really interesting. There are some you bad answers as well. I said interesting. There always <laughs> are, yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah. we won't go there. Um, so, Lawrence, you said uh, the idea that needs to be retired is that the laws of the universe were sort of predetermined. Preordained, yeah. Preordained, exactly. And, uh, and, and you, you said, you know, actually, I forget your exact wording, it was, you know, something like, it seems much more likely, or like we we might well it might well be the case that there the laws are the way they are by accident. And I am I fairly quoting that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, fall, I forget, forget what I write. You forget but, what but shows you appear on. You forget what you write. Um, we can ask the geocentrists if we're quoting. <laughs> no, my but confusion sorry. though was uh, about. So I can I can understand the explanation that something was an accident in the sense that there wasn't any sort of very thoughtful or um, or meaningful planning involved. Uh, to sort of choose that particular configuration of dice, they were just rolled, and you know, the you know, physics worked out such that the dice landed on uh, those numbers or something. But 
my sort of curiosity as to why the laws of the universe are the way they are was not like it wasn't that they they held some sort of special configuration of of uh, values, and I wanted to know why that configuration of values in particular. I just want like how how were any it, it wouldn't matter to me what the values were, whatever they were, I would want to know how they came about that way. Does that well, make sense? Of Is course it does. We want to know that's why I became a physicist and why many of my colleagues did. I'm, and Einstein put the question in a beautiful way, although he used the wrong word. He said what really interested him about the universe was whether God had any choice in the creation of the universe. And yes. by God, of course, he didn't mean God. He meant, is there only one set of laws, and if you change one little thing, does everything fall apart? Mm -hmm. Can you only have one consistent reality right. that fits together? And, it, and, and I think most of us physicists in my generation, anyway, and before, grew up with the idea that, yeah, that's probably the case, and we want to understand why. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know why the universe had to be the way it is, and that's one of the reasons why I became a scientist. And, uh, and so it's a fascinating question. And it's a little disappointing if there is no answer to that question, and namely, that the universe doesn't have to be the way it is. And our universe may be one of many universes, and the laws of physics could be different in each one. And the reason the laws are what they are is natural selection. It's not... It's not when, when, when one says that the universe is the way it is uh, uh, so, so that we could live in it, it sounds, and many people misinterpret that, to be intelligent design or some, you know, some divine mm -hmm. thing. But really, it's just natural selection. It's the same reason that bees can see the colors of flowers they can see so they can get nectar. It's not that they were designed to do that, as if they couldn't, they couldn't reproduce. And bottom line is, it's not too surprising for us to find ourselves living in a universe in which we can live. The opposite would be very surprising. <laughs> and and you'd write, you could write a whole book about that. But, um, and so it may be that, of course, um, in our universe, it allows life forms to evolve and, and matter to evolve and the laws of physics to, to evolve in such a, or to be in such a way that we can ha be having this conversation now. But it could be quite different in many other universes, and some of those universes might not harbor life. Although, it's important to point out that just because the parameters are very different, we don't know. We don't know what the, the locus of all possibilities for life or intelligent life are. We know one example. Okay, carbon-based life forms living around a star um, with water and sunlight. And so we, we, we look where the light is, literally, and we say, okay, that's an example. But it could be in other universes that are quite different, different life forms form. But the big question you might say is, well, you know, still, what determined all this? The answer is, that's not a good question. <laughs> um, or might be. Let, let me say the answer might be. And there's two ways to think about it. One is that all possibilities might be, that it's just completely random, and every possible law that you can ever imagine arises. There are an infinite number of universes, an infinite number of possibilities, and then there's no, then, then the, the, there's nothing that determines anything in, in some sense. Maybe there's yeah. a probability distribution. But not, so if everything can happen, it's the same as saying there's no rule. Right? So that's one possibility. Yeah, then my feeling of a need for some explanation sort of dissipates. Exactly. That is the case. That's, that's the right. right. That's right. It, 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 it helps your need for an explanation. But the other possibility is that that's equally likely, I think. Well, I don't know if it's equally likely, but it's, it's uh, equally plausible. And that is that there really is just one set of laws, okay? One, one rule that you can have, and all universes have, have that. But the question is what determines it is a bad question because the word determine implies cause and effect. But if our universe came into existence spontaneously, then space and time came into existence spontaneously. And time itself may not have existed before our universe existed. And clearly, you have to have the concept of time to have causality. And so the question, what happened before, or what was the cause, may not be a good question. It's something that seems intuitively reasonable to us, but the whole thing about science that makes it so wonderful is it's taught us that our intuitive reason is suspect. We have to question ourselves. It's the meeting about skeptics. The hardest person to convince of anything is yourself. We always have to question what seems natural, what seems sensible. That's what we learn in science. And sensible questions, as my, as my friend Richard Dawkins would say, common sense arose in the Pleistocene in Africa so you could avoid being eaten by lions, but not to understand quantum mechanics. And therefore, yeah, that wouldn't be useful against lions, no. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, know, you could calculate the wave function as you're being eaten, but nevertheless... <laughs> So therefore, we have to realize that, that these things that, we, that on a human scale seem natural are, are really myopic. 
And I think that's the beauty of science, is, is making us uncomfortable, okay? And I've said that before, and I worry that it'll turn people off, but it, part of the job of science is to make us uncomfortable because it, it forces us to push our boundaries. And it does that by experiment, not by revelation or pure thought, but the experiments say, this is crazy, it seems crazy, and what we have to do is force our, our thinking to, to, to understand why it isn't crazy and why the universe doesn't behave like we want it to behave because the universe doesn't give a damn what we want. Now, there's been another important development in theoretical physics recently that I want to bring to your attention. The, um, the most brilliant physicist of all time, at least according to himself. Um, Who, me? No, no, no I'm talking, I'm talking about Sheldon Cooper. Oh, Sheldon Cooper, um, of course. A lot of people mistake us, so right, it's okay. Right. Um, he's a little taller, but anyway. So, he, he recently, as in last week, he actually abandoned String, string theory, theory as a field of research, the right? Yeah. And I know that you got your own little problems with, with string theory. So what? What's the? He, he listened. Was Sheldon me. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've been on the set of Big Bang Theory. Yeah, was Sheldon right? What, what no, do we make actually, of I think things? Sheldon was wrong, and I'm sure he'll go back to what he's doing. But I, by what I'm wrong, I mean, look, string theory is the least successful great idea of the 20th century. <laughs> but but I but it is a good idea. It just hasn't performed as advertised or hoped. Now, I don't know if he's here, but I was talking to a physicist who was saying I was unfair yesterday when I was talking about string theory. You can't be unfair. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, the mathematics of string theory has been quite useful in other areas of physics, but that's not why I think string theory was you know, proposed, and that's not what it was claimed it would, could do. So string theory is a very interesting idea to try and resolve this key problem, quantum mechanics and general relativity can't be put together into a consistent theory. And as I showed to in here yesterday, we now have much better evidence that general relativity has to be thought of as a quantum theory. We've shown it. So we need, we need to resolve that problem. And string theory is based on a bunch of very good ideas, and it's very well motivated. I wrote a whole book about string theory called Hiding in the Mirror. And as I like to say, it was the only fair and balanced treatment of string theory in a non-Fox News sense. And... Uh, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of good reasons that we've been driven to it. But it has no, there's no evidence that it's correct in any way yet. It's well motivated, but it hasn't explained anything about the universe that we didn't understand before yet. I mean, any physical phenomena. It's not made any predictions. And it's unfortunate in some sense because the success of the standard model that you, you, we were talking about it, it, it was very frustrating for physicists like me and some young people who were maybe doing physics in the audience up till this last year. Because from the 1970s to last year, in some sense, we've been living with sensory deprivation. <laughs> we had this incredible theory that uh, explained everything we could see, but there was no data that would tell us, it would push us beyond that. And, and anyone knows who's been in a sensory deprivation tank, and I have, that after a while you, you begin to hallucinate. And so uh, we've been hallucinating for the last 30 years, and string theory is one such hallucination, but I don't mean that in a bad sense. Because no, hallucinating some, some hallucinations good. are good, absolutely, yeah. And, and, I mean, in physics, I get paid to hallucinate. I get paid to think of all sorts of possibilities, and most of them are wrong. And that's one of the other things that, the problems I had, one of the reasons I sort of spoke out about string theory was that one thing we don't convey to the public is that most ideas are wrong. Most experiments are wrong, too, right. the first time they're done. And so I don't think it's fair to the public, and I said this to my friend Brian Green, who lives in New York, and I think he was offended at the time, but I think he maybe almost agrees with me now, uh, that it's not yet ready for prime time. He was offended at the time because he's trying to put it in prime time. But, but uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of ideas that are really interesting, but we do, there's no need to talk about them in public because there are incredible ideas that actually do describe the universe, that actually have made progress, and those are the ones we should focus on because if we promote all of our ideas, most of them are wrong, and the public gets the sense like, as well, there's nothing really objective about science. One day they think this, the next day they think that. Well, I shouldn't believe any of it. So I think we have to be very careful when we communicate to the public about science that we're talking about things that, have, that are well tested and established. Or if we're not, that we make it quite clear that they're fascinating but speculative. And we, and we owe it to the public to, to make that distinction. Now, that's an interesting point. I, I want to actually go back for a second, uh, in a second, to, to string theory before we leave that, that topic. But, but the comment you just made is interesting. So um, it seems to me that one of the reasons why Brian Greene and many other mm -hmm. people 
Ebbing, in fact, you're right, putting stuff out there for prime time, which is arguably not ready. Well, I, I mean, I think he tried very carefully. I mean, yeah, I have yeah, great no, respect for him. Absolutely. It's okay. not a criticism of him. It's a, I think it's an observation, more ge- a more general observation, because it doesn't actually uh, apply only to physics, to uh, you know, public outreach in physics. Uh, we've, we've heard, even at this conference, uh, similar problems may be happening in you know, neurobiology, where a lot of interesting research is going on, but then uh, the popularization of that research, even by some neurobiologists, goes way beyond mm-hmm. um, what is, uh, what is warrant- warranted by, by the actual evidence. I'm wondering, you, ma- you mentioned Fox News earlier, and uh, is, is science popularizing uh, beginning to be affected by a similar issue um, that, um, like along the lines of you know, the 24-hour uh, networks, in other words, if you have a lot of uh, journals and magazines and newspapers and, and blogs and all that that, always, that are dedicated to science, you've got to talk about something, and you've got to talk about something special and surprising and stunning all the time. Yeah. And science just doesn't progress at that rate. Well, I think, it's, I think you're absolutely right, but I think it's not just true for science. It's true for news in general. Yes. If you watch CNN, right. most of it isn't news. Right. The 24 hours, you've got to fill up with something. And I think there is this great, and it's, it's been... I don't think it's, it's recent. I've, I've watched it since, since I was younger. I used to call it People Magazine Science. <laughs> and I think th- th- the notion is that everything and every person has to be touted as the next Einstein. Whenever they say, oh, this young person, this young physicist, the next Einstein, and it has to be done with hyperbole because the feeling is you've got to rise above the noise and you've got to make news. And it's really unfortunate that, first of all, I don't, generally like science when it's presented through its personalities. Because, like it or not, most scientists are like most academics, and that's re- pretty boring. And and it's and everyone has to be presented as some neat guy who had this dream in the middle of the night, Actually, it's, neat woman. It's worse than that, because it's not only most of us are boring, but all of us have a big ego. So when you couple a big ego with boring personalities, it's just really it's, not It's good. insufferable. It's, it's insufferable. Let me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, so... It, it, it shouldn't... I mean, look, there, people like to learn history and they want to know about people. So I, in, even in my own books, I try and weave the hi- history in often because it is, it, it's comforting. But, and, but the trouble is when people try and say, well, the ideas are, are, are not of interest, so we'll just we'll try and stress the people or something and, and, and that'll be our story on this new, neat new discovery when in fact the ideas are wonderful. And I, I was just talking to a friend of mine last night about this that that um, we, in, in watching public, te- when watching television in particular, um, the way science is done on TV, I think it's because of the, the Sesame Street generation that need constant stimulation. Right. But if you, if you compare many of the programs, and they'll remain unnamed, um, that you see of science today, and you compare, say, my, one of my favorites was Jacob Bernowski, The Ascent of Man, and once I was at a meeting where I compared that to another program, which again will be unnamed, a more recent one. We're talking about quantum mechanics. And this other program, it was, had all these effects and telephones ringing and all these other things. And in Jacob Bernowski, you see him standing there talking to a camera, mesmerizing you with the ideas. And I just think it's a shame that people, that TV producers in particular, think that you need to substitute graphics or, or stimulation for the ideas because... The ideas are fascinating, and I'm convinced that people will be fascinated in the, about those ideas if you present them correctly. It's a shame that it's not done. Do you want to return to sh- string theory? Yeah, I want to yeah, turn to string theory for a second. Oh, you have a question about that? Uh, yeah, so my question is, I haven't yet heard... I've heard plenty of very smart people being disappointed with string theory's uh, progress or lack thereof, yeah. um, but I haven't yet heard anyone even sort of postulating what we might turn to next, well, look, like, look, or where we might even start looking for an alternative. Well, you know, yeah, I, for instance, what the hell is loop ca- quantum gravity? Well, loop quantum gravity. I mean, it's very funny that though people do loop quantum gravity criticize string theory, because <laughs> gla- if you live in glass houses, you shouldn't throw stones. But uh, um, the, the key point, and I've emphasized it before, is the reason string theory is so popular is essentially the only game in town. Mm-hmm. Now, there's this other game, but it's, I'd, I'd have to say, among most physicists, they, they think that string theory is more compelling. It really is the best idea to try and unify gravity and quantum mechanics, but, but the best idea may not be the right idea, and it's not, and, and, and this is really important. Elegance doesn't matter in physics. We have a generation of young, the, one of the my problems with string theory, and it's going away now that we have data about other areas of physics, because the rats are, are, are leaving this ship. Um, but there was a generation of young people who seemed to think for a long time 
that complicated or difficult was the equivalent of great. And it's not in science. What's great in science are ideas that actually work. And it doesn't matter how, you can't substitute beautiful or elegant or complex mathematics as an excuse for important. And so that was sort of what was sad to me about the heyday and hoopla over string theory is that, is that I met a lot of young people who seemed to think that, 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 that the more complicated, the more difficult, the more complex mathematics you did, the better. And it's just not the case. Now, s complex mathematics is very useful in science, and a lot of it gets turned into to physics. And there's no doubt in the kind of work I do, we use complex mathematics. But, but what really matters is it does ex it explain anything. And as my friend Frank Welchek, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, used to say, and I, I think it's a wonderful way of putting it, he said, I don't want a theory of everything. I just want a theory of something. <laughs> right. Speaking of theory of something versus everything. So one of the problems... Um, as far as I understand it, and I'm not the physicist, and I don't play one on TV either, um, <laughs> with string theory is, is the following. It's not just, as you pointed out a minute ago, that, well, so far it has failed to make predictions that are testable empirically, so it has not made empirical contact, which is a problem in and of itself. But from my understanding, there are some versions of the theory that actually are uh, being presented as sort of not one theory, but a landscape of theory with a lar very, very, very large number of different solutions. Now, this has been part an interesting discussion to me because... Um, what that means is that since this number of, of different versions of theory is so high that it's, it essentially becomes impossible in principle to really narrow it down to, you know, well, this is the right place on the landscape. Well, what happened is, you know, some people have been starting to ask, well, then if you go that direction, are you really doing science at all at that point? And it's interestingly, I want to know, know what you think about this, interestingly, the response from some string theorists has been to basically to bite the bullet and say, yes, this is going to be a new way of doing science. Uh, science will have to detach itself, at least in, in part, from empirical evidence and just rely on the, you know, the compelling mathematics. I take it you're skeptical of that sort of thing. Uh, of course. I yeah. think you know, people have argued a lot of things before they make progress to justify what they're doing. It's happened in science. And then, and then, then you make progress, and all of that goes away. The origins of string theory was in, a, was in an idea of trying to explain the strong interactions in the 1960s the fact that there was a m particles kept being produced and the theory seemed to make no sense and produce infinities and it turned out you could get rid of those infinities if you had a 26-dimensional theory based on strings and that was the origin of string theory and physicists were so desperate to explain this all these new particles that were being discovered in the 1960s that some of them bought that or were willing to argue that 26 dimensions actually existed rather than have those infinities. What happened is we came up with a good theory of the strong interaction that explained everything and that went away for a while now, it turned out that those ideas could be then applied to another theory that had infinities, namely gravity, and a lot of people bought into it. Now, the, the notion that... Um, something you said was very important. Well, I thought... I'm sure everything you said was very important, but... <laughs> but, but uh, the Of course. <laughs> you used the word theory, and you used the word theory, and we shouldn't use the word theory. In fact, I've convinced Brian of this. Um, it is an insult to evolution to call string theory a theory. <laughs> um, and it's really important because people get the impression that since the colloquial term for theory is very different than a scientific term theory, that theories are just some ideas you have and it's fun to think about. But theory, of course, is the highest level you can attain in science. It's something that's been tested over and over again. Quantum theory, general theory of relativity. Uh, these are things that are, or evolution. I, I, these are things that have been tested over time and work effectively. String theory is none of that. Moreover, it, as we have excitingly discovered, it's not a bad thing, we discovered the theory, the, I, the model, the idea, the mathematics wasn't what we thought it was. It turns out strings may not even be important. It, they may be irrelevant. It turns out these things called membranes or embranes right. might be important. And so the ideas are very, are evolving at a great rate. And so we don't even know what that quote-unquote theory is if it exists. So it's unfair. It's, we shouldn't be calling that. We should string hypothesis. But strings may not even be relevant. So that's the first thing. Right. But the second thing, you're, it, a very important point you stress, is that if, and this was a great disappointment, I think, to many string theorists, because one of the ideas was that it would focus in on a single theory, a single model that again, would be compelling and explain all the, w all the weird things about our universe, why there are three forces, et cetera, et cetera. And it looked early on like that might happen. 
that you might, in 11 dimensions, you might have a unique theory that really would produce a four-dimensional universe. Although, by the way, it never, was never part of string theory. And Richard Feynman used to complain about this. There was never a prediction for why our observable universe should be four dimensions and there should be 11 dimensions. It was never a natural way of saying suddenly six or seven dimensions will compactify. And in fact, Feynman used to say that it didn't ex string theory didn't explain anything. It constantly makes excuses. And I think that was a real, that's always been a problem. We don't have any reason, even if it's true, for why our universe should be big. But the hope was that it, this unique theory would, would explain our universe. And instead, now I think the consensus on, among most, but not all string theorists, because my friend David Gross, who's another Nobel Prize winning physicist, who was also one of the people who pushed string theory and continues to, he actually thinks that much of this discussion about landscapes is misplaced and there really is, will be a unique theory. And it may be. But right now, the problem is it predicts potentially every different possible law of set of laws of physics may result from this one idea. And then if, if it can, therefore, by the way, it can never be wrong, right? Because anything, right. anything you measure can be consistent with one of these. And as you point out, maybe that, you know, is that science? If you can't be proved wrong, most of us would say it's not science, because science is based on what you can prove wrong, not right. Another misconception. Science can only prove things wrong. That can't prove anything right. Okay, just proof. If, it's, if it agrees with the experiment, then the idea isn't ruled out, and, and it's like Sherlock Holmes. You keep getting rid of the stuff that doesn't work, and you hope what's left over has some element of truth That's in it. That's very Popperian of you, yes. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I was influenced by books I read as a youngster, but I've grown up. With yep. But um, uh, uh, in any case, I think uh, that, pr that is a problem. And it may be that at certain... It's not so much because of string theory... But it may be what we the success, the embarrassment of riches that have happened, as we were discussing at the beginning of the program, the discoveries we're making about the universe and the reason I wrote my last book are taking us to realms where we didn't think we could even ask the questions as scientists. And what we're learning is that we're, we're running up against what may be fundamental limits that limit our empirical ability to answer questions. We're running up against the limit for example, that we live in one universe. Most of us do, as I like to say, the Republican Party doesn't. But, but, <laughs> but most of us, you know, because we live in a single universe and we have access to only the, a certain set of information, there may be fundamental questions we can't answer directly. And those used to be so far away for the domain of empirical uh, uh, experiment or investigation that we didn't ever think about them 20 or 30 years ago. But we've made such progress that we are empirically addressing questions now where we are limited by the fact that we, 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 we live in one universe. We actually call it, in one field of physics and cosmology, we call it cosmic variance. Namely, certain parameters of our universe look like they were their were, they were result from quantum mechanics. In fact, the new gravitational wave data, as I talked about, implies that even more. But quantum mechanics has probabilistic results. Right? The theory itself is deterministic. Let me make that quite clear. The universe is deterministic, no matter what people say about quantum mechanics. The theory is based on a second-order differential equations. You provide the initial, uh, initial conditions, and the, the, the equations evolve deterministically. But the measurement of those wave functions, which are deterministic, is probabilistic. But that means if the theory, if the fundamental theory is quantum mechanical, the manifestation of it in different universes can result in different, in different measurements. So that when we see something on our universe on the larger scales, and it's strange, to some extent we can't say, is it strange because the idea is wrong? Or that we just live on an outlier. That right. this particular manifestation of an underlying probabilistic distribution, we're, we're just not typical. We're just in an outlier. And that is a real problem because... Uh, yeah, when you come, when, when you see these strange things on large scales, you don't know if it's an accident of probability or, or real. It's like, if you, it's like doing medicine and uh, epidemiology. Okay? Yeah. How do you do it? You get a, a large medical study involves two patients, okay? or one. Let's say you do a study with one patient and you see they're seven feet four. Okay, say, well, does that imply all humans are seven feet four? Or should I understand human physiology by assuming all humans are seven foot four? Or did you find a basketball player by accident? And, and 
That's the question we have to ask about the universe as a whole, and it, we don't know the answer. Right. The principle of mediocrity may not apply, basically. So the, the idea is that it's a reasonable principle to start with. Mm -hmm. right? If you don't know anything else, you assume that you're about in the middle of the distribution. And it works because but you may not be, the probabilities tell you that most of the time you're in the middle of a distribution. Right. So it's a good bet. Yeah. But so yeah. we, we've touched on uh, maybe three times so far in this conversation uh, criteria for evaluating Am I allowed to call these theories? You can call whatever hypotheses, you want. Yeah. Speculations, hypotheses, hypotheses, yeah. dreams, um, yeah, hallucinations. Whatever. And we've, so you've, you've, touched <laughs> you've touched on uh, the criteria of simplicity um, and your sort of preference against uh, using that criterion in the case, uh, say, of the, uh, was it the Higgs boson? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and on the elegance criterion. There's only, one, there's only one criteria. I, I mean, it's not a, philos well, forgive me, it's so not a philosophical question. There's one criteria. Does experiment. Experiment no, no, no. determines but, whether, but whether things... But when you're in, the, in the, the phase where you're deciding what, what to even spend your time you know, thinking about before you get to the point where you're, you're you know, trying to design an experiment. Well, um, what, what, what people do, and this is, very, this is very clear and appropriate. It may not sound that way. People pick the ideas that are, they find attractive, and they work on them. And that's why I meant it's wrong for Sheldon to give up. Because if he thought it was really beautiful theoretically, he should continue to push it and not give up until he knows that it's wrong. And so it's really, really? important. Yeah, I actually think that? it requires a thousand points of light. I think it, uh, when science is healthy, it requires the people to look at a lot of different directions, not just one. And we don't know which direction is going to be fruitful. And the only way you can work for 20 years on an idea is if you have some inner feeling that it must be right. But the and that's fine. That you might call that faith, but the difference between the faith of scientists and people in religion is you may have faith that this idea is correct, but the minute, the second you discover it's not, you throw it out like yesterday's newspaper. That's the difference mm. between the faith of science and the faith. But of, of course, the problem in part, as we've been discussing, <laughs> yeah, there you go. But. But the problem, uh, as we've been discussing with, with string theory, uh, actually the two problems are, first of all, that that has been, you, you just presented this model, which I think is correct, of science as essentially a, you know, a shotgun approach to things. You know, that's why the National Science Foundation funds, and should actually even more, uh, a variety of projects mm -hmm. at possibly a lower budget than you would otherwise, because you don't know, you, know, you, you cannot predict which one is going to actually pay off and which one is going to be turned out to be you know, a dead end. But the problem, it seems, uh, that in, in uh, fundamental physics over the last several decades is, in fact, that that string theory has been almost the entire, the, the entire game in town. And yeah, and some people said, that's the pro that, I, I agree with you. I mean, what we used to say, I don't think it's so much anymore, but in the 90s in particular, what people were upset about, and rightly, was that the only people who were getting jobs were young string theorists, who right. actually hadn't, what they'd shown is that they were smart. Um, but that's it. I mean, they did very complicated things, but none of those things had implication. And people who are working in other areas, including what you might call phenomenology, what we call phenomenology, which is trying to explain experiments, uh, were not. And that was an unhealthy situation, I think, right. because it was sort of a monopoly. Now, you know, on the other hand, it's not so bad to give smart people jobs in, the, in no, academia. Usually and in fact, fine, as fine. a chairman of a physics department, that was my criteria when we used to hire, and it still is when I try and hire people, is not so much that what they're working on is important and, and we of course that's one thing but you know good people is to hire someone who you think is going to be good and be good in the long term because things move on and so it's not just someone who's working on something that's hot now what you want to do is hire someone who has the capability of moving with the field right. and therefore and yet, therefore one of the things that's useful is to hire smart people now we're almost uh, almost to the Q&A uh, but I want to uh Pick your brain about something else. So you mentioned at some point uh, a few minutes ago the word natural selection, which of mm -hmm. course is a concept um, that uh, that is important from biology. And as you know, some people, particularly Smolin, have been proposing this idea of sort of cosmic natural selection. Um, I looked into it as a biologist, and, and it's garbage, I don't, right? yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't buy it. Oh, I don't I, buy it either. You I know, the, the key is a key point, and you know this, and but I'll talk. Um, <laughs> sure, go ahead. Uh, uh, really? Is, is that? Um, yeah, yeah. No, no. I know we're in agreement here, but because. One of the things about nat it, the thing about biology, natural selection, as a, as a as 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 a precursor to evolution, is it requires a distribution. Right. It requires replication and 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 with variation. Though natural selection is just one part of evolution. If you didn't have a distribution of genes in a population and replication, then natural selection be you know be it would act, but it wouldn't have the effect it has. And some and and what's ridiculous about in my and Lee is a friend of mine, but I was very upset or, or disappointed 
um, when, when he wrote a, a, a book, basically, it said, you know, there's cosmic natural selection and evolution, that universes, that the information from one universe evolves into in the next universe, and, and somehow that leads to... There's no evidence of that in science. Natural selection and may operate in the sense that we are selected to be in a universe that we're in, but that's not the same as evolution or adaptation in any sense. And, and, I, and it was an example, in my opinion, of exactly what I said you shouldn't do for the public. Because I know that Lee wrote a paper. It was a speculative paper. And that's fine. I have no problem sure. of publishing speculative sure. papers. But what I have a problem with, and I apologize, Lee, if you're listening to this, but what I, what I, what I have a problem with is, that, is when you take those speculative papers, which deserve to be there, but are, most of them are going to go by the wayside, and write for the public as if it's somehow well-defined, well-accepted, theory among scientists, because you're doing everyone a disservice, in my opinion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Professor Krauss just passed the Biology 101. So, um, <laughs> should we go to the Q&A? I guess we should. Great. Hi. So, I'm a string theorist. Um, <laughs> you know, some of my best students are string theorists. I just wouldn't want my daughter to marry one. That's no, I, <laughs> I told my wife the same thing. Um, I, I just want to say, first of all, I actually I agree with, with nearly everything you said about well, that's right, theory. of course. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I think most of my colleagues, uh, you know, we're not the youngest generation of string theorists, yeah. but we're, we're among them, would agree that string theory is a, essentially a failure as any kind of predictive theory, and as well as so a, far. A unified but theory. I, 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 you know, the, 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 rule, the game is not over yet. Right, okay. but the, the, the question I wanted to ask you, and the point I wanted to make is that the idea of string theory as, uh, as a predictive theory and as a theory that is a theory of everything is what a tiny minority of string theorists use string theory for these days. So what I do and what my, most of my colleagues do is use string theory as a theoretical tool for understanding strongly coupled problems. It's a very, it's the mathematics, as I tried to say, the mathematics of string theory have been very useful, uh, imported into other areas, in particular strongly interacting theories. And so there's been fascinating results. And, and, and so one can't deny that. But if you're as old as me, and I'm a lot older than you, yeah. that the, the, uh, uh, it's sort of ironic to see those very people who are, who are touting this as potentially theory of everything saying, no, no, what's really useful is a tool in these well, other areas. It is, but it's a huge disappointment compared I, to the I, original I, And I completely agree. But yeah. do you think it's fair to call it uh, a failure, uh, even though it, it's had what, what I view as quite amazing accomplishments as a theoretical tool? As a th but okay, so it's a theoretical tool that is not a failure. Okay. But as, a, but as a model for understanding the world, in particular f for understanding the, the four forces of nature and unifying gravity and quantum mechanics and predicting the pr fundamental parameters of the world, that's been a failure. Yeah, and those I, were, that's what it was designed absolutely. for. And, there's, and that, you know what's great about, about science is you don't... It's true about all of science. You never know where it's going to lead. So good ideas are useful in many... I, I, and string theory is an example. Hard work generally pays off. And, and, and there was a tremendous amount of hard work developing the mathematics of string theory, and it's paid off in another area. There's not, no doubt about not it. Not if you're Sisyphus. But, but the, the thing is, um, and now I'm confused, because uh, can we have an example, very briefly, of something that string theory was actually useful for in terms of science, not in terms of you know, developing more complex mathematics. That's great. Well, so, so one thing that is, is currently under consideration is using this idea of holography or ADS-CFT to study systems in condensed matter physics. So I think it's not completely clear if, uh, if, if, it, if there's an experimental prediction tied to this yet. But no, there's but even... For understanding, there's you know, that that sounds like the same systems, kind of problem. No, no, but, no, no but, there's, but there's, you know, uh, what you're working on, actually, and by the way, one of my students is one of the people who applies string theory to uh, condensed matter. I'm very pleased with his work there. But, but another area is that um, you, many of you know I've written about F Richard Feynman, and, and, and Feynman developed these things called Feynman diagrams, which are what we use in particle physics to try and calculate processes. And w literally, it was problems with those Feynman diagram calculations that led people to the notion of string theory as a, as a different way of solving this problem in the 1960s. But, and it didn't. Okay, but it turns out that what string theory gives you is a mathematical tool that allows you to sum an infinite number of Feynman diagrams, which you couldn't do in any finite time without that mathematics, and try and get results about it, theories for which you couldn't get predictions before, strongly interacting theories. So that's where I think the mathematics of string theory has been quite useful. Yeah, I agree. Okay. And can we have a next question? Yeah. As um, a, a reader of, uh, a layman, and just a reader of science through the popular press, when it was reported that uh, neutrinos are measured to go faster than light, my first thought was, I'll just wait till they correct themselves. But how did you experience that? Well, of can course. You, can oh, you repeat the oh question? Oh, yeah. So the question was, well, as a lay reader, when they f we first read that neutrinos travel faster than light, he wisely, he didn't add that, but that's my idea. <laughs> he wisely uh, assumed that you just wait till it corrects itself. And by the way, 
That should be your that should be your response to any new result that's quoted in the press. Is to be no, I'm serious. I'm mean, not just a, casting aspersions on the press, and they deserve that. But but uh, but but it's that you should be skeptical. That's what this whole thing is about. And so if something's been done once and it's surprising, most surprising results are wrong. And so that's why I often think it's premature to, to, as it was in the case of neutrinos traveling faster than light. My response was a sigh. I mean, my first response was, it's even worse. I knew it was wrong. For, there were so many, because again, people think that science is just a set of disconnected facts. But, you know, you can't make neutrinos travel faster than light without other implications. And, and, and you know, having to do with quantum field theory, which is a theory at the basis of the standard model, which works for understanding everything we every experiment that's ever been done. So it's not as if you can, you can, you know, change one thing with impunity. It's not, you, te- you change that fact there, you make, you make all sorts of other things wrong. So it was pretty, now that doesn't mean it was necessarily wrong, okay? But it meant it was highly likely it was wrong. It right? was a good bet. Yeah, I have this mantra, which is, which is, uh, I got from the publisher of the New York Times, which is, I like to keep an open mind, but not so open that my brains fall out. And, and my argument, and I think Massimo will appreciate this in particular, um, I knew it was wrong right away, empirically, because the experiment occurred, these neutrinos were generated in Geneva, and they were measured in a, at a tunnel in, in the Italian uh, Alps, basically, um, and they arrived uh, 60 nanoseconds too early, and nothing arrives early in Italy. It was that's just right. A, that's, a, right. that's right. No, I can. It, that's an empirical law. Next. Hey, um, so when you were talking about... Um, the, the bounds of only living in one universe. Um, I was thinking, there's all the, um, the theories about having the multiple universes and all of that stuff. I'm probably m- not I completely understanding this, right? But could there ever be a situation where, like, multiple universes would exist in a way that um, they could... Interact? Interact or expand in each other. And, like, Again, how would yes. our universes expanding and all this... We don't even completely understand the stuff that's making it expand and making it accelerate expand. And would that... How would what would happen? Yeah, would they collide? Okay, so the question was, with all this talk about multiple universes, is there any way that they might actually interact or collide uh, in a way that we would therefore know about them? And the answer is, in principle, yes. And there's some ideas that would allow that to be the case. And some some string string theory proposed explanations of dark energy, which are unlikely to be correct, um, have argued that there's some impacts of other so-called brains, that we live on this four-dimensional brain and there are other brains in an 11-dimensional thing. Spelled how? B-R-A-N-E. Just clarify. Not the stuff with the neurons inside. Although they also have argued, it produces something called Boltzmann brains, which is A-I-N. But anyway, we won't talk about that. But, you know, and so you can imagine, think of these planes that are somehow moving and vibrating in extra dimensions and maybe they interact, okay? That's possible. Highly unlikely, but possible. But the most well-motivated versions of, of multiple universes suggest quite the opposite. And that is, and what people say, well, look, if the universe is expanding, what's it expanding into? And the point is it doesn't have to expand into anything. And the idea of inflation, which now has more the justification because of these results of the last few weeks, tell us that, in fact, the way inflation works is that the universe gets stuck in this metastable state and it starts to expand exponentially. And one region of it sort of falls out of that. It's like sort of a phase transition happens, and that creates a big bang in that region. Uh, in that region experiences what our universe has experienced since inflation. But, all, but what happens is in between those regions that are falling out of inflation, the rest of space is expanding exponentially. So in fact, they're getting further and further apart, if you wish, and it suggests that there is this multiverse of universes, some of which are just being born right now, and other ones which may be dying right now, but the, if you wish, the space between them is expanding exponentially, and more and more space has nothing in it. Most of the multiverse has nothing but empty, exponentially expanding space, and there are these small pockets of universes, and in each universe, it turns out the laws of physics could be different. So in, those, in that case, the, the, although every individual universe, could, including our own, could expand exponentially once it's created, as ours are now, the region between them is getting further. And if I haven't confused you enough, <laughs> let, me, let me say something remarkable about general relativity because it's very non-intuitive. If you create a universe which, um, a bubble of a universe which from the inside is expanding exponentially, if you were looking at it from the outside, as Alan Guth, I think, first argued, it would look like it would collapse into a black hole. 
So it looks like it's getting smaller from the outside and it's getting bigger on the inside. And that's allowed in general relativity. And if you don't like it, well, I'm not sure if this is turning into an episode of Fringe or <laughs> Doctor Who. Yeah. But anyway, okay. next. Sure. So you said something earlier, I th and I think I understood you say that quantum effects are deterministic. Right. Well, quantum theory, theory the quantum right. mechanics is deterministic. Okay. It's a deterministic theory. The measurements are not deterministic, they're probabilistic. The, right. the underlying wave function is completely determined, but when you try and measure that wave function, you'll get um, results which form a well-defined and completely determined probability distribution. So the probability distribution is determined with 100% preordained accuracy, if you wish, but, but what you measure is one, at each experiment, is you measure one one test of that probability distribution. So when you, it's only when you measure it you're saying it's probabilistic? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, your measurements are probabilistic. If you, the, the evolution of the system is completely deterministic. And, and so at some, I mean, this is a, this is a, leads to the philosophical questions of free will, but let me just say my version of that is that, is that the under, uh, there's clearly no free will in the universe in the sense that the universe is deterministic. But we live in effectively a universe that has so many degrees of freedom and uh, uh, that effectively we live in a universe that where free will exists. And so um, operationally we can behave as if there's free will even if we uh, are, are happy at some level that, you know, to accept that there isn't. And that resolves this fundamental dilemma that Newton had right. you know, of a mechani mechanistic universe. With, you know. Is that because you just don't know the initial conditions well enough? It's not just that. There's so many variables interacting that even if you know the initial conditions, th things quickly, if you want to, say, become chaotic or become... Um, for example, if I knew the initial conditions of all the atoms in this room, things would quickly become so out of hand that computationally I wouldn't know where they all were, even, even if they obeyed Newton's laws. Um, you know, because, in fact, one of the... You can create great solace in this, is that in classical mechanics, we can solve exactly um, a two-body problem. The minute you add a third body... That's things it. became chaotic right. and you can't make predictions. That's it. All it takes is three bodies yes. for free And anyone will. who knows, who's been involved with three bodies, knows that it's yeah, very exactly. <laughs> yeah, so You, you do realize that we have a nice set of quotes that we can put together, put together and make, and make you really look some, like and, and, something. And like I did with, and of course, I'll, I'll get back at you, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't know. You may have just answered this, but is there anything random in the universe? In other words, can you get different effects from exactly the same causes? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, in a sense. It's not random. I mean, it's random in a, in a, in a well-defined way. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, in fact, in fact, the universe, that, that what's the most amazing, one of the things that's unheralded that should be really a, a, appreciated more is that everything we see arose from what you would argue is a completely Gaussian random distribution, namely our existence and the lumps that collapse to form galaxies and stars and people and aliens and everything else according to inflation, resulted from quantum fluctuations in the early universe that get turned into classically observable effects. So in fact, the distribution of everything we see in the universe is a random realization of an underlying quantum mechanical distribution. And so, in a sense, we are just results of quantum fluctuations. Everything we see in the universe resulted from some random fluctuations in early time that got frozen in and got turned into classical observable. So in some sense, everything you see was, was random. Now, the distribution was determined, but where, which galaxy, which lump formed where, and where they occur and how they occur was in some sense random. But, and, and again, another example that's very much more, much less uh, exotic is radioactive decays, okay? Particles, radioactive materials decay. We can predict on average how long a radioactive particle will survive. But each one, it, but predicting in general when they'll survive will not tell you when each one will decay. And um, they'll decay with some distribution. And you can say with great authority or, or expertise that, that, that after a certain amount of time, this fraction of the, of the particles in a, in a box will have decayed. But which particles will have decayed is not something you can say. You can't predict that at all. And by the way, just to make, turn that into something amusing or interesting, is that the, the most basic radioactive particle is the dominant particle in your body, the neutron. It makes up most of the particles in your body, and what most people don't realize is that neutrons are radioactive. They have an average half-life of 10 minutes. So neutrons, if, if I have a neutron here, it will live 10 minutes. But most of you will realize, perhaps agonizingly so, that this 
podcast has, has lasted longer than 10 minutes and you're still here. And, um, and what's amazing is another remarkable accident of nature is when you drop a neutron in a nucleus for reasons I, I won't go into, but it's pretty simple. It just loses a little bit of energy and gets a little bit lighter. It becomes stable. So we think of these particles as stable because they're in nuclei. But if you had the neutrons in your body, took them out, they would randomly decay, and you couldn't say which one would decay when. So hopefully that answers your question. I think we have maybe time for one more question. Are there any more questions? Uh, oh, 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 no. Okay. Well, uh, I'm sorry we have oh, to wrap I, up. Sorry. I was wrong. Yep. Sorry. That was random. That's Massimo always getting no, your hopes up. That was up. very random. I tend to be optimistic about <laughs> time. That's it. That's it. Well, Lawrence, it's been such a pleasure having you as Thank a guest. You. It's been it a pleasure to be here. Too Thank long you coming. Uh, just wonderful, fantastic discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of you. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.